Um, yeah, so we have two amazing um, editors. They basically are going to be listening to some pitches today that were prepared by our amazing pitchers. Um, worked, they've worked really hard to keep it under a certain time limit. You, we know that this isn't normally how you pitch stories in front of a group of strangers <laughs> in like four or five minutes. But um, it's exciting, you know, um, and uh, you know, normally you'd have like a written pitch. We're gonna talk a little bit about what you guys normally do for, for pitches. But um, first, we're just gonna get started. Let's just jump into it, let's just do it. Um, so let's see, we are going to start, is Irene here? Irene Smalls is a former beauty queen and a licensed hairstylist. Woo, woo. Um, Irene was also one of the first um, Afro natural hair models in the 1960s for Johnson Products, Afro Sheen line. I love that this is in her bio, like this is so amazing. Um, she's the author of 15 books for children and three storytelling CDs. Irene is going to be pitching to Jason DeRose for NPR's um, all things considered. Okay. Go, Irene. I'm delighted to be here and have a chance to share this amazing story about ethnomathematics. And I'll start with, in this era of, era of money and power, Me Too means we too want a seat at the billionaire's table. And girls have a head for math. But where is our female Bill Gates? Girls can do math and science, computer science included, equal to boys. And while we're 50% of the population, we're decidedly less at the billionaire's table. And what's interesting from my personal perspective is only 2% uh, of computer science degrees are awarded in this country to women of color. And so research shows that it's culture and our biology that masculinizes the tech world. And so, what I present to you is ethnomathematics. Ethnomathematics is the math and science that's embedded in the culture of a people. That ethnomathematics goes, by, goes back four to five centuries in Africa. In African-American hair braiding, African hair braiding, there is fractal geometry, tessellations, all of these modern day math terminology terms that really remain just around the 1960s. And so the idea is that black women have a cultural edge in math and science. And so we have a spot, deserve our spot at the billionaire's table. And the concept of fair math looks at engaging girls starting in kindergarten with math and science with hairstyling. With braiding, they braid the doll's hair, they braid each other's hair, and hair braiding is a community event. And one of the reasons why women drop out of the tech field, they drop out at a rate of 57% versus 17% for men, is because of the lack of community. And by incorporating the inherent culture, cultural math and science, in a young girl's beginning, and her self-concept of herself as a math and science person, we have a way to alleviate that problem. And so what I am suggesting is that not only do girls have a head for math, they're better at it than boys. And the idea is to use the techniques that we have available to us from centuries ago to make sure this happens. That girls are integrated throughout society in math, science, and STEM. Do you have any questions? <laughs> 
So how are you going to tell this story? Well, I'm going to start out with a little girl saying, ouch! And then to have her nana and her fonts and her mother talking, oh, girl, go ahead, sit there still. And then I'm going to segue to a African hair braiding salon. And we'll have a battle of women talking about hair. And then we have Dr. Gloria Gilmer, who's a 90-year-old former president of the U.S. Ethnomathematical Society. And have her talk about the research that she did in the 1960s on the math and science in African-American hair braiding. And to begin to share that, with uh, young girls and having them talk about their hairs and what they do and why they do it and so on and so forth. Because the whole concept of beauty is mathematical. It's based on the pie. The Greeks develop a formula for absolute beauty. And so everything that we do from makeup to hairstyling, because our faces are geometric face shapes, that we literally create hairstyles to make our beauty enhanced by applying it to that pie formula, Greek formula. And so it's meant to be something that uh, we hear people talking, we'll experience the braiding from the stylist's point of view and also from the customer's point of view, and then we'll switch to a mathematician and a, someone in computer science and technical uh, fields talking about how you know the math and science that applies to hair braiding is applicable to the math and science he's using on computers or she's using on computers. Have you found someone, or could you find someone, who is currently in a computer science program today who got interested in that program through hair braiding? Okay, uh, Dr. Ron Englash, and I've met with him. He is an expert. He's gone to Africa several times to look at the math and science and hearing to building cottages, homes in Africa, hair braiding, textiles, so on and so forth. And he's the one who's developed a computer program, and he's the one who's developed a program for schools to use teaching math, science, technology through hair braiding. So I would start with him, and then from him, develop the context to find people who started in hair braiding with this program that he developed several years ago and went into a tech field. Okay, so I think that for, for me to start this story, I think that's the person you need. You need that. I'm, I'm now majoring in comp sci at Stanford or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how I got into it. And then you can back into the story of, you're, you're, trying to tell, you're trying to tell a couple of different stories, right? The story of how this one person became interested. Mm -hmm. The story of how there are cultural reasons that she may have become interested in it. And you're trying to tell this much larger story of why aren't there more women, and especially women of color, in tech, right? Yes. So think, about, think with me about which characters in your story are going to represent each of those levels of thinking about this. So I mean, it sounds like you have some of them. You have the experts. But mm -hmm. I'm very interested in the real person who, who's, who's in that science program. That sounds wonderful. And um, as I said, I do know a number of math PhDs. It was part of doing the research was uh, talking to women who were in uh, PhD programs and how did they get there and so on and so forth. And um, again, with Dr. Eglash and with Dr. Gloria Gilmer, I'll be able to hone in on those that were specifically motivated by connections to this ethnomathematics, this hair braiding, this hair style, and the community orientation and the self. Uh, image building that it provides. 
Now, you mentioned scenes, um, starting with little girl, you said saying, ouch, getting her hair braided, right? right? And then in a salon. Um, how will you connect what's going on in that salon? Is the salon sort of the opening shot? Um, like, we're seeing this happen, and then you're going to explain what's going on here? Or are we going to meet the woman who's maybe in the PhD program, getting her hair done, and then it sort of backs up from there? Well, I think that, that uh, there are a couple of approaches that I can take. And I think the first approach, I want to start young, because the idea is that girls develop uh, math anxieties early in second grade. And so you've got to get them young because they start, uh, shall we say, not taking math. And math is cumulative. So if you don't take second grade math, and you can't do third grade math, and you can't do fourth grade math, and you certainly can't do physics and calculus and all the things that come after that. And so I want to definitely impress upon the audience that we have to start young. And then it was really, really poignant to segue between the woman who's in a PhD computer science program now and her experience as a young girl. And again, finding that connection of that person who started out with the hair breeding and found the connection to the math and science. Now, have you talked to doctors Gilmore and Eglish, was that yes, the other person? Have. You have talked to them. I've met with Dr. Eglish. I've uh, had several conversations with Dr. Gilmer, and I've also uh, recruited an advisory board of uh, math teachers who are interested, because uh, the math is a subject that a lot of people don't want to do. You know, I've done focus groups where of the group of girls, if I say, okay, we're going to do math, they're like, what? I'm out of here. But if I say we're going to do pretty lessons, and the idea is that the whole concept of beauty is based on math. Oh, they're very interested in beauty lessons. They're very, very interested in makeovers. And so again, presenting the same material, but positioning it differently as a way to enhance their own natural beauty and as a way to kind of ease them into the concept of they are math and science literate. And as a matter of fact, they're good at Now, our doctors, Gilmore and Eglish, good talkers, meaning they can explain what they do to a lay audience, or are they very technical in the way they, they speak? You no, know, Dr. Gilmer particularly, but she was the one who uh, did the research on the first style. And Ron Eglish has a um, actress computer game that involves cornrows, hair braiding, uh -huh. and he talks about the XY axis and you know the tessellations and so on and so forth. So a lot of, uh, in terms of understanding math, is more the terminology. And so the, uh, the program that Dr. Ernest developed particularly introduces the technology in a very girl-friendly way. And research shows that math and science, when they're introduced in terms of girl topics, girl-friendly topics, is something that girls are very interested in. You said he created a video game about hair braiding? It's an online computer game, yes. Okay. D does it make noise? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I remember. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, because I actually tried it a couple times. But um, as I said, it's a very, um, it's a fun game in terms of, you know, you're braiding hair and you're doing that. We're going to move on to the okay. next pitch, okay. but Jason, is this something that maybe you'd consider, or do you think there's some areas that Irene should really focus in on before you would consider? I think that starting with the problem is probably a better place to start than starting with the solution, and I think you started with the solution of ethnomathematics mm -hmm. instead of 
there's a marked lack of women and especially women of color in computer science. And I would just start there because you have to know why we're doing this other story, <laughs> why okay. we're doing, why you have an answer. Okay. But, so just, I wouldn't necessarily lead with the answer. I would lead with the problem. And then you can get to the, the answer. And you did, though, what I am often asking people to do, which is what is the big idea behind, what is the big idea that you're trying to get at in this story? And I feel like you, you got to that in different ways from, from different angles. I'm really glad that you had um, some people that you've already spoken with. Um, I, I always say that a, a good pitch requires you to have done significant reporting before you bring it to the editor. You, I sometimes get these odd pitches that say things like, I want to do a story maybe about Muslims and women. And then I'm like, and? <laughs> so um, you had a very you know, narrowly focused, here is the story that I want to do about women in mathematics, and here is a solution to this problem. I think that's great. I asked about, are they good talkers, especially with scientists sometimes. People just cannot get out of their lecture mode and can't be as conversational. So I would you know, urge you to, and maybe think with you of some questions that you would ask to get them to really explain it to you in ways that listeners can understand on all things considered. Because remember, this is a general audience. They're all driving. And they, they really need uh, a quick explanation of why they're listening to the story. And they can't rewind most of the time. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Irene. Great work. Thank you, Irene. And next we have Aluakemi um, Aladeusum. Hopefully I said that right. Aluakemi is a reporter and an independent radio producer. Her first audio gig was hosting a world music show on KWUR, her college station. Since then, she's gone on to work for NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered, as well as Gimlet Media. And she is pitching to Jason DeRose, okay. NPR. Um, so I'm going to talk about beauty because it is a multi-billion dollar industry and the latest trend is to go back to basics. So you have big companies like L'Oreal and Garnier kind of stripping back the synthetic chemicals and ingredients and touting things like turmeric, coconut oil, and tricolor as like the new solution to um, beauty problems, I guess. And one thing I really want to talk about is shea butter because it comes from the shea tree, which is native from West Africa. And it's rich in lipids and fats that kind of seal in moisture and make it kind of like a, a golden beauty product. And today you can find it on like the drugstore, in soaps and lotions, kind of everywhere. But I mean, just a few decades ago, if you wanted to find shape by it, we're gonna like go to the street corner and find someone like selling it. And it was gonna be like probably someone, like an immigrant with a connect, like shipping it over, like in their suitcases when they went back home to like Ghana or like Liberia or something like that. Um, and literally selling it door to door and mixing it up from their kitchens. And so um, that's how Michelle Dennis, um, the founder of Shane Moisture and Nubian Heritage, um, got his start in the 90s. He had his grandmother's recipes from Sierra Leone. Um, and he concocted like, different mixtures in his kitchen and then sold them on the street corners of Harlem and Bed-Stuy, um, two very black neighbors in New York. And um, now the brands that he built um, are literally worth billions of dollars. Last year he sold um, his company to uh, Unilever for $1.6 billion. So um, not a small sum. And like, kind of you have this like um, 
this heritage and like this authenticity that um, is now owned by a multinational conglomerate. <laughs> but um, you know, he's really committed to like supporting black female entrepreneurs. Um, so in coordination with Unilever, he has a hundred million dollar um, fund for black female entrepreneurs. But like, that's kind of my question is because I do wonder like, is there any space on the beauty shelf left for like a young woman today who's trying to like make her own shea butter product in her kitchen, selling, sell, sell it to other black women, um, like would she even get any traction? So um, this story is really about someone who I find really fascinating. Um, her name is Abina Boma and she's the founder of Hannah Hannah Beauty. And in a lot of ways she's following in Dennis's, um, in Richelieu's footsteps. She has her own small company. She's whipping up shea butter in her kitchen in Chicago. And she is, um, she has a brand that's about like natural beauty, um, supporting feeling comfortable in your own skin. And also I think really interestingly, like trying to not be, not exploit the raw material. So she like goes back to her native Ghana and like works with the women's collective to get this shea butter. Um, and um, so that's kind of the question, like natural beauty today is brought to you by like big beauty, but um, can, is there still room for like the little person to like make a mark in the market? So, so the, the name of the, of the woman here in Chicago is Adina Buma, did you uh, say? Adina Boma. Boma, okay. Mm -hmm. And the name of the man who sold his company to Unilever? Richelieu uh, Dennis. Dennis, okay. Yeah. Um, do you have interviews with both of those people? Um, I do not have interviews with Richelieu Dennis, but I have talked to Abina Boma um, in New York. Um, so, but um, yeah, so that's okay. where I am. Is it possible for you to get an interview with both with uh, Richelieu Dennis and Dina Boma together, maybe? You know, I think actually, like, given how, um, like, passionate, like, Richelieu is about, like, specifically, like, supporting young female entrepreneurs, like, mm -hmm. I, and because it would be on NPR, <laughs> I honestly, like, think it's actually probably, like, really reasonable to do something like that. Now, this also sounds to me like something that there could be some version of this that does air on, say, Morning Edition or All Things Considered, but are you familiar with the show How I Built This? Uh, yeah, and I think Richelieu has been interviewed by Guy Ross. Oh, yes, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. for that. So there's actually existing tape of an interview with him that NPR has possession of if you couldn't get an interview with yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, help me think about some of the scenes that you might mm -hmm. have in this story. Yeah. What um, can we see people doing, or what can we hear people doing? Uh, we could definitely hear um, Abina in her kitchen making some shape, like some of her products. Um, I can kind of imagine um, like going to some of these natural hair expos where people are selling um, things to like other women. I can um, imagine like kind of going to some of these like more um, corner stores in places like New York and like kind of where you can buy raw shea butter that like is kind of sold by, um, by like other immigrants and stuff like that. So uh, a wide variety of scenes. Okay, so you could be present while she's making yes. one of these products yeah. and sort of like a show me how you make X. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That that could be that could be good. Um, how good is she at describing her own entrepreneurial sense? Um, she is amazing. Um, I think like it's really like 
um, she, like her brand is like really focused on like a lot of aspects of like sustainability and transparency, which are like also really big trends in like new businesses. And um, she's like a pretty vocal person and it's like spoken at like different like creative morning type of things. And so, um, yeah, she's like a, a very good speaker and like very entrepreneurial and like very committed also to like creating a, a positive community for like other women of color, which is like a big aspect of, of her brand as well. Great. Right. I often ask that question in part because, you know, sometimes you'll hear an, an artist being interviewed and they can't really describe what they do, but the yeah. thing that they do is art. But if they can't talk about it on the radio, it's really hard <laughs> to make, yeah. make it a story. Um, is there a central conflict in your story that you want to explore? Is it the no more room in the market? Uh, um, is that the conflict? What is, I think that sounds like it's becoming what the conflict is. Um, yeah, I think the, the conflict is uh, like kind of maybe like a little bit more ideological of like when you have a big corporation that like sells things that are authentic, like, you know, where's the place for like things that are like, you know, maybe a little bit closer to the ground um, because you do have like a multi-billion dollar company with like all of these international supply chains that are really murky to be honest. And I think like on the other hand, like, you know, when you're really local and you're really like close to home, you can kind of like talk to your suppliers and, and talk to that. So like, I think that's one of the contexts that this story like fits in in like a, a bigger thing, a bigger like global context and then also like a, a crowded marketplace too. Would you be able to get both Richelieu Dennis and Boma to discuss the problem, that particular problem? Um, you know, Richelieu's been, um, one of the things about like his brands is that he's always been committed to fair trade. Um, and I think part of like selling to Unilever was like having some of these like questions about, you know, being fair to workers really embedded in the contract negotiations. So I, I do think it's something that he, you know, cares about. Um, but like as, in as much as he, he sold his company, like how much, I like, so like that would be like a question. Um, but I do feel like historically he's been committed and I don't see why he wouldn't want to answer a question like that. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like you've got, you know, a couple of strong characters here. You've got a scene and you have the, you're, you're working toward solidifying the exact point that you want to make. So I think you have the, you have the makings of a, of a good story here. Awesome. Nice. Thank you. Deep breaths. Deep breaths, everybody. It's all going to be okay. We're very nice people. Yes. We're really very nice people. Yes. How do you know I'm a nice person? Because <laughs> I, I listen to out. the waves, yeah. and I think okay. you're very nice. We're going to find that out right now. <laughs> yes. Because we have some pictures for Invisibilia. Um, we're going to first start with Samantha. Woo, woo, Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Samantha Hodder. Samantha is a multimedia producer and writer. Over the past two decades, her work has been on CBC, The Globe, and The Mail, TV Ontario, and she's premiered at film festivals internationally. Um, her most recent work is a short film about Antarctica, um, opened in Venice, Italy this September. And uh, Samantha's gonna be pitching um, to That's Hannah. Cool. So yeah. let's, go, let's go for it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I've been following this story about a leadership expedition to Antarctica for about two years. And this is a special expedition. It's only for women who work in STEM. And from this, I've launched my own storytelling podcast series called This Is Our Time. It's about women in leadership. 
and I launched the first series, which is a virtual story, last January. And when it came time to start thinking about how to continue to do this and what does the second season look like, I had an interesting choice presented to me, which was, would you like to come with us on the expedition as podcaster in residence, like an embed, and be here for three weeks and record every single thing? Which is an offer that's very hard to turn down. And that's how I came to be in Antarctica last winter uh, with 80 high-powered women scientists from all over the world. One of them was even a Nobel laureate. So to say the least, it was an intense experience. Um, maybe some people here have had experience being on a ship. It's, it's not a place of free will. You don't go there thinking, what am I going to do today? It's, it's the captain's ship, and you're there to do what you're told. And for physical size of the ship that I was on, just to paint a picture, extremely limited small environment. It was a decommissioned Russian spy ship from the 1970s that held 84 passengers. So cruise ship is the wrong image. You don't go expecting choice. But then one day, the tables turned, and there was a decision that had to be made about where we would go. And on the surface, it was an easy go or not go, yes or no kind of choice. But the captain of the ship refused to make the decision. The expedition leader refused to make the decision. And the entire leadership faculty said, nah, we're not making the decision. Actually, we're going to ask the participants. We're going to ask the women to vote about where they're going to go um, and what to do. So I'm going to play um, just a short clip of tape that you can be put in the room of what it was like when this actual vote happened. So we are simply going to say, I'll do a show of hands. Wait, wait, can you start? Sorry, sorry. So we are simply going to say, I'll do a show of hands who would like to go and then a show of hands who would prefer not to go. And I'd like it to be, I would recommend it's blind because I don't want anyone isolated for the choices that they make and the leadership team will walk away with that decision. Are you all okay with that? Yeah. Does it seem fair? Can I check with those who are feeling uncomfortable? Okay. Close your eyes. Can those in favour of going put their hands up? Hands down. Can those in favour of not going put their hands up? Beautiful. Hands down, eyes open. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> we will be back to you in 10 minutes. Oh my God, I have no idea if they're like going on a Starbucks run or a suicide mission. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you're in Antarctica, and, yeah. you look, and you look out into the water, and you realize, I will die in 15 seconds if I fall in that water. The ship won't even bother to turn mm -hmm. around. You know you're in the fiercest ocean that exists, and when the waves come up, it, the, it goes side to side for 12 hours. That already happened, 12 hours of wanting to barf your guts out. So every decision that's made in this extreme environment comes with a huge risk. And what does risk produce in people? It produces stress. Stress, okay, so science moment. Let's look at psychology. What do we know about stress and our human response to stress, right? It's fight or flight. That's what we all think. But what if we think we know about psychology isn't the full truth? Because what I witnessed there and what happened after, after this vote couldn't have, been the, couldn't have been farther from fight or flight. What I witnessed was tend and befriend. It was reasoned, it was supportive, it was emotional and caring. But wait a second. What is tendon befriend? Well, let's, let's pull back and look at the early work of psychology that gave us this term. It was done by Walter Buchanan in the late 1920s. It was research done on rats, and stress was introduced, and the rats had two choices, or they, they had two outcomes from the stress, and one was, to fly, one was to fight, or one was to flight. 
And that was common understanding for about 70 years until another researcher, her name was Shelley E. Taylor, came along and she thought, I'm going to look at the early research of psychology and see what I see when I look at a couple thousand studies. And what she noticed is that all of the researchers were male. And there was an incredible preponderance of male rats in the studies done. And she thought, hmm, what would happen oh, if I... The rats were yeah. sexist. <laughs> what would happen if I swapped out gender, both for the researcher and for the subject, the rat? Could there possibly be another outcome to this? And in fact, there was. And this was a term that she called tend and befriend, which came out in her seminal study, uh, re, um, uh, published in the year 2000, and where she talked about the fact that there actually was a third way when you swapped out the gender and when you looked at science a little bit differently, i.e. because you were a woman. So hold on a second here. This is tricky. Is Taylor saying that our response to stress is predicated on gender? Well, that's tricky. And there's a lot more science to get into that, which is super fascinating. But what I find really incredibly interesting about this story is that we're really trained to think in, in a black and white term, fight or flight, but there's actually another way about this. And I have uh, a story based on human experience using basically a human subject um, research lab of this ship in the middle of Antarctica that, that, that resulted in, a, in a, an experience of tend and a friend, where, where these women care for each other and they put their, uh, their friends' needs first and they they made, they formed community around a decision, which was an incredibly interesting, empowering experience to be on. And not only does this story challenge our notion about science, but it also asks us to consider our reactions to how we deal with stress. And I'd love to share the story with you. Thanks. <laughs> That was a beautiful pitch. Um, I'm going to say a few things I really loved about the pitch. I appreciated the, the tension that you built into it. Um, that's like how you build a good story is essentially you, you build tension. Um, um, so I'm going to ask you about that first. Uh, so, so what was the moment actually like on the ship? Like, did it feel like a moment where no one knew what was going to happen and things were going to, like, how much drama is there around that narrative? There was a lot. So this was it's sort of there was a build up to this, and I was an embed, right? So I had I had I was one of I was I was with the participants, but I was also with the leadership team. I was also on the deck on the on the, the bridge with the captain and the expedition leader. So I had this free access to see all the top sides of the story, and it was kind of tension mounting. And, and what what I didn't say in this is that part of the reason we had to have this decision is that we were trying to get to this base, this research base called Rothera, on an inside passage that was full of ice. And we got almost stuck in the ice because we couldn't go any further. And so we had to make the decision to either turn around and go home or go out into the open ocean. So And was like the captain depressed or he was having a feminist moment or like what was going on with the captain? The captain had been to Antarctica 100 times and had never been to this base station. The, the expedition leader had been 100 times and had never been to this base station. But they were feeling like this was a decision that was a bit risky because it involved going out into the open seas and to go and, and it's a very... It's an intense ocean, and there was some kind of bad weather there, and so they they were just putting it out there, and it was kind of a weird moment because usually you don't have this option case, and so it was it was about halfway through the trip, and I think it was a bit of like people just sort of threw their hands up and said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, let's ask, and kind of accidentally it turned into this big dramatic moment 
which, which seemed kind of calm in that moment, but then it turned into a two to three hour discussion of people getting up and saying their testimonial and tears and crying and someone running out of the room and someone going to chase them. And then, and that happened spontaneously. Yes. Because I was wondering, like, were you just surprised by what happened? It was completely like, like, uh, uncoordinated. It, it, I don't know. You're in a small environment. This kind of rumors come around. It was like, something's going to happen. Like it was clear that we couldn't go the way we were going. Something had to change because we were either going to stay there and be stuck in ice, which is an imminent possibility, or we were going to have to turn around. So, and the ship was going, it was a very dramatic environment. You felt like you're on the moon. So uh, there was a lot of, there's a lot of layers of drama happening around. What actually happened in the vote, which is hard to get to in a four minute pitch, is that uh, 80% of the people said, yeah, I want to go. And 10% abstained and 10% said, no, I really don't want to go. The leadership team took this upstairs to talk about it. I have this on tape and the leadership team said, we can't go. No one left behind. It's too stressful. If we go, we risk everything that we've been building here. This is a leadership expedition. We have five people freak out. We're done. We can't go. So they came back and said, actually, no, we're not going, which was a huge crash because 80% of the people had to restrain their incredible um, defeat that they couldn't get to go to this place that they've always wanted to be. So then that played out for another day or so. This, this story goes on. It's, an eight, it's going to be hopefully a six-part series. So I, I'm trying to, this is like a little morsel of the story in the middle of it. And did you, um, do you have ta- tape from, from contemporaneous tape of what was going on and the decision-making and all that kind of thing? I have it all. Oh, okay. That's exciting. Um, I thought you were going to have to recreate it by... um, um, And then the one thing we think a lot about at Invisibilia is like, how does the narrative uh, fit the idea that, you know, how do the narrative and the idea kind of organically weave together and sort of support each other and change throughout the course of the story? um, so, so in this case, like, I, I don't totally understand the risk, the connection to risk. Like, it feels to me like it's a story about decision making or something else. But like, why is it about risk? Why is that moment about risk? I think it's, well, because there was risk involved to people's personal and emotional safety. Mm-hmm. But it was more about the stress. So the stress of making that decision caused this reaction among people. And then the reaction my my son of science connect to it is that the reaction wasn't a typical what everybody thinks is going to be the reaction. It was actually quite different than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so so and you were surprised by this. What did you call it? The tend and befriend thing. Like you just were. You didn't. That wasn't what where it seemed like things were going. No, because at the beginning, before people kind of tempered themselves, they were really mad. Like people were getting up and trying to use this very you know, positive language, but saying like, I've really, I'm only here because I want to go to Rothera. This is my whole life's career. I will never, ever be back here. And you're going to, you just, like, you just going to feel sick for a few hours. And so you're, you're okay with me having my life's dream quashed. And so that was, that, that played out for about an hour, um, half hour, 40 minutes. I don't know. It seemed like forever. Um, And this was all done in, this is a leadership expedition. It's like a, you know, a course that people are on. There's, we're all sitting in the same room. People are standing up with testimonials and I had my mic on the whole time. That's amazing. So the, I, then my last question is about the science. Um, 
I'm like a total sucker for all this new research that reverses these like settled ideas about, yeah. you know, science, especially if all like they were, you know, they had the chimps in captivity. So they totally understand, misunderstood <laughs> women and sex or whatever. There's a lot of like really, yeah, yeah. really interesting, you know, things that people are going back and looking at because, um, because of the way they did the research and then the evolutionary biologists decided thus was so. Right. Um, so this sounds like another one uh, because fight or flight does sound like, like a male response instinctively, but but I also resist the kind of easy conclusions in that science. Like, oh no, sure. people actually all get along in those moments. You know what I mean? I'm always yeah. a little suspicious. So how solid is, or is there any other body of research or is it just this one scientist person who did the you know sexist rat study? Well, she's... Uh... <laughs> She, uh, she's a professor emeritus at UCLA. She has a huge team around her. Um, when you go in and read the actual science, it's about the uh, endocrinatic results in your, the hormonal ex results in your body. So it's, it's about oxytocin versus testosterone. It's really smack down between those two. And um, uh, it's, has it gone on to be cited? That's a good question. She's a she's a real life superstar scientist. Um, uh, but my question, which is a bit like yours, of why isn't this common parlance? Why doesn't people? Why don't? Why doesn't everybody think about this? Is it because it's sexist, or is it because? You, you mean the term tendon befriend? Yeah. I'm more thinking like, what's the layer underneath this science? So it's like, okay, fight or flight. It feels like it needs one more deepening of the idea, like fight mm -hmm. or flight. Uh, it, well, is this sort of leftover idea we all had that isn't really true, mm. and so therefore what? Right. So therefore what? It's not like therefore all of science is sexist, but therefore what? Like what's the next kind of well, I think it's, layer? Um, I think there's a gender bias layer <laughs> there that I, you know, so many of our foundational science I, mm -hmm. concepts are built on men doing research in, with rats in a laboratory and that that has become part of our culture. And how do we then narrate and understand our own experiences and reflect on our stressful moments and you know, when you didn't fit the mold of tended, if you didn't fit a fight or flight mold before this was, you know, even research that had been done, are you like, geez, am I a weirdo or, or am I, um, am I just not that person? So I, I think there's to kind of go into that, why that, why our cultural understanding of these maxims of psychology make us who we are, who we are. And what else, what else have we kind of, um, leaned on in that way as we go forward? All right, well, that sounds interesting. I would love to hear some of the tape from the ship or, you know, whatever is like the high drama moment would be great. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We're going to keep moving on. Um, another pitch to Invisibilia. Um, before, uh, before we um, introduce Miss Lily Sloan, who's up at the mic, I just wanted to make an announcement here that we have Alex Goldmark. And, can you raise your hand, Alex? Hey, Alex. Um, Alex Goldmark from Planet Money and Brian Erstadt. Is, is Brian here as well? Okay, yeah. Well, um, they are with Planet Money. If we do have some extra time, which we might mm -hmm. today, if anyone has a pitch that's burning in the front of their 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 I don't know what it's called, invisibilia people, this part of the brain right here, you know, I don't know. But um, if anyone Front has part. a pitch and, and you're interested, <laughs> something, and you're interested in pitching, we might be, have a chance for you guys to get to the mic and pitch. He's interested. Right? His friends are trying to encourage Okay, so think about it while, you know, let it marinate a little bit. 
And let's introduce uh, Ms. Lily Sloan. Lily, hi. Lily is a San Francisco-based independent producer and creator of uh, a show called A Therapist Walks Into a Bar. And um, she offers radical advice. She also works as a musician, composer, um, and creates a, original content, uh, content for other uh, podcasts. She's also a therapist, which I... Yeah. So um, Lily is going to go ahead and pitch. And Lila, I forgot to clarify with you. Can I point to you when my clip comes? Just point to me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't want to be rude. Yeah. Hi, Lily. Yeah. I, I got Hi, it. Hi, <laughs> Thank you. Um, sure. Okay, so in September of 2016, I had my first dream where I was being violently assaulted by a man. And uh, I woke up and I immediately recorded it into my phone. Like screaming and like crying and trying to get away from him. So that was just a little, a little snippet. But um, I've never actually been violently assaulted or sexually assaulted. But um, these themes continued to haunt me in my sleep for the next two years, still ongoing. Uh, for obvious reasons, probably. But it's the same time that we're all trying to grapple with this stuff collectively. And the dreams have been super traumatizing and wretched, but I'm starting to really understand that they're holding a really important function in my life. So the story isn't just about me um, and my dreams. It's not just about the Me Too movement, even though all these things connect, but it's really about the restorative and creative mechanisms of our brains that are helping us heal and grow even while we're sleeping. So another, you know, I, you mentioned I'm a therapist, so I'm really interested in dreams, but I wanted to understand more about where the science was at. So I've talked to a couple of people in the field of neuropsychology, including Dr. Alan Hobson at Harvard. The science of dreams, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Of like how dreams function, what we know about how they work. And so uh, Dr. Alan Hobson at Harvard is in his 80s. He's still publishing papers, um, kind of this wacky character. But in the 1970s, he was one of the early people to really challenge Freud's idea that dreams are full of deeply hidden messages from our psyches. However, despite what they taught me in undergrad, he's not a nonsense theorist, as he says. He actually thinks dreams are meaningful. The model that the brain uses to interpret reality in waking is remade every night in dreams. Dreaming is very artistic. Our brains are not just recorders, they are scriptwriters, they are filmmakers. So dreams, in a way, are kind of art, and art is this space where we work stuff out, we envision a better reality, we cope with and process emotions that can feel like too much to address in this direct way. Um, and it's a way to find an outlet for our fantasies. So I've been taking audio from recordings of my dream descriptions from waking up and turning them into experimental audio art as a way for me to process them. And some of them I've released on the White Whale podcast. But um, the thing about dreams that I've been learning from talking to these people is that they actually are doing a lot of that restorative work on their own, whether we remember them or not. That you don't have to take them to analysis and break them apart. Um, and they can be a way to track changes, though, if you are paying attention. So for me, paying attention to my dreams meant I started to notice shifts inside of myself. 
like the way that I'm relating to men who hurt me is really changing in my waking life or the way that I am relating to the pain of women around me. Um, so a couple months ago, I had this crazy dream. I'm yelling at this guy who's hurt me in the past. I'm screaming at him. I'm trying to get him to go away. And these male friends come up and stand beside me. And when the guy finally goes away, this happens. They all kind of like wrapped around and group hugged me and I was crying. Wait, sorry, and can you start that one more time? I'm just going to hear it. I was crying. They all kind of like wrapped around and group hugged me and I was crying and they were crying. I said, you weren't there when it all happened, but it was really bad. And they just, they didn't need proof. They, they just believed me. So the reality that I want to move more towards is becoming more clear and I'm even seeing that reflected in my dreams. And instead of seeing these dreams, these nightmares as something really bad that I have to get rid of. I'm really beginning to understand them as an important creative tool in this fight inside of myself and out in the world. Excellent. Um. So first I would say it strikes me as a story about nightmares and not dreams. Well, um, actually, there's an interesting differentiation that I learned from someone I talked to. And bad dreams are not necessarily nightmares. Or bad dreams. I'm yes. saying for packaging purposes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. saying for scientific purposes. <laughs> like Because I yeah. feel like we, we're a little familiar with the sort of dreams being restorative. But this idea yeah. of thinking of bad dreams yeah. is a little more provocative. Like the idea, because I think we, we sort of embrace dream life that isn't quite Freudian and isn't quite not Freudian, but the idea of embracing bad dreams or nightmares, that's a little bit more uncomfortable right, um, to yeah. think about bad dreams. So if you sort of start to think of the framing as like, you know, love your bad dreams, that's cheesy, but something better, somebody yeah. say something better, something <laughs> like that. Um, um, so um, can you say a little, so, so you started by saying a dream of yourself assaulted. Like one thing I was thinking as you were talking is that a lot of this is about the, the, the sort of permeable boundary between what's happening in the world and our own experiences. And because dreams are also desires. So like what, how much did you interrogate those dreams that you had and what they were about and what, you know, what they were saying about your listening to the news and right. because there's like a sisterhood of us, there's a whole bunch of like interesting interpretations I can do of that dream that you had. So I wonder what you did. Yeah. Yeah. And there was actually another dream where um, nobody was helping me until two women ran over and got the guy off me. So it, there's been really interesting and most of them I'm helpless. So. And why do you think you're having them? Um, I think because, so there's a couple layers. There's the perhaps the fear of these things happening to me, like in a literal sense. And I also think that they're representative of more like less physical ways that I think I've felt assaulted and attacked by men throughout my life. So it's playing out in this very like, you know, literal physical attack, but it's actually, the experience feels familiar, even though it hasn't happened in that way. Um, and then you were asking, right before that, you asked about the, the meanings of, what did, 
There was something else you asked me right before that. Oh, the fantasy. Don't worry about that. That's a okay. gross question. Um, the, uh, that will take us down into a bad place. Um, let's not go there. You uh, don't want to know what my fantasies are? No, um, no because, well, no. Uh, no, I do, but I, I really have no filters, and I'm afraid if I don't stop myself now, I will... Same. Embarrass myself. So, um, the, the, um, the, um, what is the audio in this story? Like, what actually would we be listening to on as a radio story? Like, I can yeah. hear, I can hear the essay, but like, I'm wondering what would we be listening? What would be the tape? Yeah. Basically? So, I have, I have recordings. You heard little clips of them, but from me recording the dreams, like right when I woke up, some of them I'm like crying still because I was so upset. So they're very raw. Most of them are recorded before I even thought I was going to use them for anything except my own private, you know, recording of the experience. And then I also, I, so I did the interview with Alan Hobson. It was over the phone. He's totally open to having a more in-depth interview if this story is getting made um, and has a lot to say about it and also is like, you better read all of my papers. <laughs> and then I also did an interview with... He talks a, like an old-fashioned, like, cassette tape recording yeah. of a dude scientist talking about dreams. Like, yeah, it's actually when I did bring up... He was asking me about my interest in and I shared the theme of my stories. That That's not an area he's particularly sensitive about mm -hmm. in terms of, like sexual assault. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not that he's bad about it, but he just, he was like, cool. Um, uh, but then I also talked to this guy, Raphael Valent. Mm -hmm. uh, he's French. He's from, he's from France. He's at UC Berkeley and doing postdoc stuff and has done some really interesting research about dream recall because I was kind of interested in what are the differences between people who tend to recall their dreams a lot. I'm one of those people um, and, and he was, he had a lot of really fascinating things to say. And I have, I have about an hour interview with him and he's open to more follow up. Um, can you tell me as like precisely as you can, that second process of, of, of what you think those dreams sort of bled out into your regular life and change because dream science is a, is a fuzzy science even oh, yeah. the neuroscience is fuzzy so yeah. like you know something beyond just like it's healing like what exactly would we be like learning that was somewhat surprising about how those dreams you know sort of affected the rest of your life yeah well it's definitely problematic to claim that the dreams are changing something but the part that i think was fascinating was how the dreams could show me the like could correlate with the changes that I was experiencing in my waking life, and looking looking at it more from a correlation perspective, and the ways that for me it was useful to recognize like oh that being in my dream is helping me see that progress is happening even though it's not linear even though I have a dream where I'm totally helpless then I have a dream where I'm not and then I go back to a dream where I'm helpless again that it's just showing that I'm. I'm working through that the way change mm -hmm. typically happens. Mm -hmm. So I think that that part about using dreams to even be kind of aware of what we're trying to work out in our lives is what's most fascinating to me. Yeah, I'm all on board with attunement to dreams. I think it, they tell you a lot if you're not too literal-minded. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, um, oh, I forgot to say about the audio. I also do have those experimental audio, the art that I've been making with the dreams is part of my story around this process. And that those have been powerful for me and to share them with other people. Have been powerful. Yeah. Um, I would say if you were at a pitch meeting in Invisibilia, the actual biggest 
barrier to this story was that we did a story about a sleep talker mm -hmm. um, and um, you should listen to it um, and have. see. Oh, you have. Okay. Because because it, it's just, I feel the quality of the tape would be similar. Uh -huh. It's like a lot of sleep talking tape right. and she goes through a very similar arc to the one that you described. The, the content of the dreams are very different, but she does go through that arc of like attuning to her dreams and then and then creating this story and then being in touch with the person in her dreams. So it's, so it's the, the arc of the two stories feels similar. It, yeah. This is a great story yeah. and it's interesting. I could see it as a really nice essay. It feels very similar to that story and how it would unfold. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know this isn't very um, in, invisibilia uh, ish. What, ish, but in terms of Ist. yeah, one of the ways I've thought of doing this story is is going much more heavily sound designy, kind of merging that the kind of reporting, science reporting with a lot of the the experimental sound stuff I've been doing with the dreams to bring people into the experience. Well, that's the one thing I was thinking for a story like this, like take out the science, mm -hmm. don't do a literal TikTok, but create some something where you see the thing moving from beginning, from sort of trauma, like, like, like startling to, to soothing with some kind of sound motif um, and, and you, you're not even saying very much but it becomes clear that someone's using their dreams in a certain way but a much less literal sort of sideways take on this I think would be really interesting. Do mm -hmm. you think that this would be an Invisibilia story? Do you feel like it's more for a different sort of platform that does more experimental? It depends how you do it. No, it, for Invisibilia, if you did it sideways and it didn't sound like that other piece, I feel like it really would sound too much like the sleep talking piece in its arc if you just did the straight forward version, even though I think that totally works as a story. Um, I think, but if you did the sort of sideways version, then it might, then yeah, it could be cool if we're doing something along that theme and then that becomes a kind of end piece or something like that, then sure. Cool. Thank you, Lily. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Brave, brave souls. Really, I seriously. love it. I love it. Are we being nice enough? Are we nice enough? You yeah, guys, I nice think they're pretty nice, right? Okay. I mean, I've been to some of these panels <laughs> in the past, and I was like, I'm never getting up there. Really? Um, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. It's. I feel like you know, there's definitely some. You know, it's it's very open and. Um, you know, honest environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to just spend some time with a couple questions um, for you guys and some questions from the audience. And if there is anyone with the marketplace, quickie, quickie pitch um, that you can uh, 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 pitch to Alex, then we might have a little bit of time for that. But um, one of the things I think that uh, came up, or I saw both of you guys kind of going in the direction, was Jason, a question that you asked was, what is the central conflict? And I kind of wanted you to talk about what that means when you're pitching a story, um, because it's something that I think a lot of people fail to understand. Uh, I'm kind of an unreconstructed classicist when it comes to storytelling. You need a, an antagonist, a protagonist and an antagonist, and the conflict between those two is going to drive the narrative. And so I'm looking for characters who are in some way in conflict with each other. That, 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 that doesn't always mean that like they're beating each other over the heads, but I need to know what the conflict is that's going to drive the narrative. Somebody wants to do something, somebody doesn't want them to do it. Um, so that's usually what I'm, what I'm trying to get at there, because mm -hmm. sometimes people have, there's a person doing something and I want to tell you about it. Right. And then I, I want to know what comes next. So that's why I was asking about the conflict. If somebody's trying to stop them from doing it, 
it doesn't have to be another person. It could be some greater force. It could be. But you can, don't you think you can drive that in different ways? Like you can have like a mystery that you're trying. So it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be one against the other. But let's say there's like something you're trying to figure out throughout the court. There has to be something that isn't just like right there for the taking. Right. Like you right. Were saying. I think that's it's, what it's I like mean. this it, person is cool. It has to be right. something that you, as a listener, forces you to be like continuously engaged with the story. So it could be like holding back. What, like you did in your pitch very nicely about the about the like 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 you know Starbucks run or suicide mission like I said like which one are they like you're just trying to figure out like what is the thing that they're holding back that was good because we were all like hanging on that to figure it out so you can do it by building tension into a pitch so right. it doesn't necessarily you know, tension is another word that you could use to for conflict. In the conflict I mean I, I there has to be something that that makes you want to know what happens next not just that something happens We've been thinking a lot, um, I think Elise isn't here anymore, but we've been thinking a lot at Invisibilia of constructing stories, thinking every step of the way about what you're not saying, not about what you're saying. Because you tend to like report a story and then you're like, and then this happened and that happened, because that's where you are after you come back from a reporting trip. But we're trying to think about stories and exactly this didn't happen and that didn't happen and that didn't happen and sort of unfolding out the information and always attuning to like what you're not saying can you, in, can, can in you the moment. give an example of that? Um, yeah, just like like what you what you we just are trying it this season, but like like what you're le like you so you th when you think of the story structure, you don't you leave out crucial bits of information and, and until you almost build the story backwards. So you sort of see where you're leading to, whether it be an emotional bit of tape or a revelation, and then you build the story from that point backwards. And so you leave everything out, like laying out bits. It's just a way of thinking of how to do a story. You know, because it's not our natural our natural instinct is like, hey, Jason, I went and that happened. The guy, you know, that's what you, that's how humans talk to each other. But to keep listeners listening, you're just trying to like not do it that way. Right. You're you're taking more control of the narrative arc of the story by withholding certain yes. things. I call it withholding information until the right moment in a piece. Sounds yeah. like you've had relationship talks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want to be like too cheesy because you don't want to be like done, you well, know, right, the mystery. Right. So, but you have to do it elegantly. But, but it is a thing to think about when you're making a story or doing a pitch. You know, like what, what is that? Where is it? What's the? Oh, what's the tension? Yeah. You know? um. Um, yeah, there's actually an interesting, if, if you guys are familiar with Transom, uh, they have a really interesting way of looking and deconstructing stories starting from the end. And, and working oh, your way cool. back. And they used an Invisibilia piece to demonstrate that. So it's really, I, I can see, I we already did is. it. Can they tell us which yes. one it was? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, another thing I, I kind of wanted you guys to talk about, which we talked about last year, was the difference between a topic and a story. Because I feel Excellent. like a lot of pitches, especially that came in for this panel, there was a lot of um, great topics, but not necessarily stories within them. And I think it's kind of hard for some people to, to kind of dissect that and figure that out. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is super important, but I don't think it's a dead end. So let's say you're just really, really interested in something. What was the one you made, like Muslim women doing some, you had a- The pitch was, I want to do something about uh, Muslims, maybe Muslims and women. Okay, so let's say, Right, so you all get why that's Actually, a problem as a pitch. Right there. That, that pitch. <laughs> I want to do a story about Muslims, maybe Muslims and women. Are you interested? 
No. So, (laughs) no, no. But see, this is what I wanted to say. It's not actually a dead end to be interested in Muslims and women. Like, let's say you're really interested, like you just have this idea, you've got a friend who said something to you, like something, right? So how would you go about pitching a story to Jason about Muslims and women? Anyone want to give me an idea? Like, where would you start? You'd start anybody. You'd do some research. You'd see what stories were out there. You'd see what stories had already been told. You'd see what was the kind of conventional wisdom and everybody knew about it. And then you would try and find something different to say and try and find a character to say it through and try and find a location to put that character in. And then you'd look for the tension, that character fighting against another thing to get something heard. So it's not like that's a non-starter. It's just only a start. So I receive most of the pitches that I receive as emails that come to me. And I get about 200 pitches a month. And I don't want to have to authorize fishing expeditions. I think, go on your own fishing expedition. When you have a fairly well-honed five or six sentences to pitch to me, then you're ready to come to me. But not a, can I have permission to think about Muslims and women now for the next I will say when early in my career, when I I was a magazine writer for most of the time, I was a journalist, and when I pitched stories to magazines I really wanted to write for, I did a ton of work on those pitches. Like I did reporting before I pitched. I found some care like early in the early days, I would find characters before I pitched, like you guys did who pitched here. You guys did a great job on that. Like you, I already interviewed the scientist. I already, you guys all were really great on that front. Um, It's it's important to do work on pitches if you want to break through. I mean, once a person gets, say, their first couple of pitches through to me, then I am more willing to have longer conversations. But the the way the pitch usually happens is that somebody emails me five or six sentences. I read through everything. I try to respond to almost everything. But it's never a yes or a no. It's either, it's, well, it's often, sorry, no. But if it's a yes, it's a provisional yes. Like, I want to have a conversation with you about this. And then we'll have a, you know, 15, 20-minute conversation so that I can see are you, are you starting to think about how to construct this as a story? Or is this just the beginning of your fishing expedition that you right. need to authorize? I mean, I will say um, there are three things I look for in a pitch. Um, one is like the narrative is somewhat surprising or it's clear to me what the narrative is or the character is. It's like some sort of like, you know, some fact pattern as we call it, that's like interesting or surprising. Um, what it's about, now you can't probably figure that out in your pitch, but I look for people trying to think about what it's about or sort of think about the story in a way that they're thinking, oh, this is about something Thing more than the actual facts, and then feasibility. Like, like, like. I actually have been to Antarctica. This is not my fantasy about Antarctica. Like, you actually could access these people, or you know, these people will talk to you. So those are pretty much the three things that I think about in evaluating. What was the second pitch. one again? It's um, it's fact pattern being surprising or interesting. Fact pattern slash character. Um, the person starting to think about. The bigger issues, the bigger like issue, it, yeah. it does, it could be science, it could be like what this story is about, and you never get that right the first time, so don't worry about it. Right. It's just like that you're thinking that this should have more universal. You um, need that big idea eventually, though. Eventually, I mean, otherwise, yeah, what yeah, you've yeah. got is three people talking. Right. <laughs> Although we like help people with that. It's intimidating oh. to be like, I know exactly what this story is about the right. minute I pitch. Nobody. I mean, I, I find that I'm almost always crafting the point of the story with the reporter during the edit. Yeah. Because they have a lot of information, but they haven't decided what they really want to say about it, or haven't been given permission to say what they learned during this reporting, because so much of the reporting that they're doing elsewhere is a kind of, the mayor said this, and then the councilman said that, and oh my god, I'm going to slip my wrist, it's so boring. 
but you know, I'm trying to look for, I'm, I do a lot of that too, but I'm, I'm trying to look for stories that make a point that, oh, this is a story about the history of the freedom Seder, but what is it really about? Mm -hmm. Right, the what is it really about? Are there any questions? Go ahead and line up at the microphone if you have any, right in the center of the room. Um, one of the things that I, I was curious about, um, do we have a question? I'm not asking uh, a question, I'm just raising the mic for everybody. You have a question? Oh, you can go ahead. Definitely fangirling a little, but hi, hi. I'm Madeline Beck. I'm with um, Harvest Public Media and Illinois Newsroom, a couple of RJCs, oh. formerly uh, Inside Energy. Abby Wendell. Yeah. <laughs> you guys Abby. stole her. I'm her replacement. Anyways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the new Abby Wendell. <laughs> um, I was just asking, uh, since I've mostly been in RJCs as a public radio reporter, usually we have editors pitch for us. Uh, I'm terrified of going out there and now having to make those connections myself, how do we initially get in the door to Wait, make what? those questions? I didn't even understand your what that was. What do you mean your editor's pitch for? Um, usually <laughs> for all RJCs for uh, Inside Energy, it's been Elisa Barba. All of the reporters that were part of that collaborative are pitched through Elisa. Um, all the partners that are part of the collaborative Harvest Public Media are pitched through the editor, uh, Erica Hunsinger. All of the people who are part of Illinois Newsroom are pitched through that area. Wait, I need one more level of explanation. So yeah, there's sorry. a group of reporters, and they have a supervisor. They pitch the stories to that person, and then that person pitches the stories to? To either whoever they think it should be pitched to, to be okay. honest. OK. Right. Um, so, so what's the, the question is? If once I get out of my own, can we break that system like, yeah, down? Well, well, yeah, not only that, <laughs> but um, just for me or anyone else who's just getting into pitching for themselves, how do we find you? What is the initial, do we make an introductory email or do we come to you first time with, I have an amazing story, I'm really cool, you've never heard of me before, but here's what I have. I literally couldn't care if I've heard of you before. Okay, you just right. email Great. me at aceberosen <laughs> at npr.org. That's how you would pitch me. Yeah. And then I would have the pitch. I mean, it's literally that easy to pitch us. We also have Invisibilia pitch. We have actually an email that is read all the time. Like we read it every day where people send in pitches. So we love, we can pitch me on Twitter. You can pitch me wherever you want. Um, so um, we're not really scanning for people. I mean, people with radio experience is, is good. And But we've considered pitches from people with very little experience. And then we create certain kinds of arrangements with them. Like like we did it last season where, where very, like some relatively inexperienced reporters pitched us a story. So we, we laid out exactly how we were going to do it and what kind of credit they were going to get and how we were going to report together. It sort of just depends on where the person. And we've had situations where somebody in the building pitched us a story, so he narrated it and we just kind of edited it. So it just depends. But we can make all kinds of deals. I don't know about how yours works. Um, I'm looking for people who already have some radio experience. I, I, this, the enormity of my job is such that I can't necessarily work with people who don't know how to hold a microphone. Um, but. If you don't know how to hold a microphone and you're in a place where I need a reporter, I will fly there and teach you how to hold a microphone. So I, you know, there, there isn't one answer to that. Um, I actually really deeply dislike the way that it's currently being done with the RJCs because I don't want to say yes to an institution. I want to talk to the reporter first. Um, what often ends up happening is that you know, you've pitched to that editor, that editor pitches it to me, then I have to go back through all of those channels to get to the reporter that I want, because often there isn't even a reporter name attached to the pitch that I get, and I don't know if this is somebody that 
I'm going to have to pour a ton of time into and I'm really busy with another project right now or somebody who's in a place or who I've worked with a thousand times and I know like, oh, well, the pitch isn't quite there yet, but they're going to pull it off because they know what they're doing. Um, so I end up doing this forensic <laughs> work to figure out, okay, who is the person and can this person really pull this off? What I really don't like, and my... I almost always say no to pitches that are a link to the local story you've done. Do you want this or a version of this? The worst possible pitch is, and I get this more often than you might think, is a link to like an hour-long documentary that says, will you listen to this and tell me if you want any part of it? Well, you're asking me to do an awful lot of work, and I think you need to do the work. Got and that. I already listened to about 20 hours of radio a day, so I need to like listen less. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. We're gonna start wrapping up, but um, I, I definitely wanted to, like it's burned in my mind that Jason DeRose will get on a plane and fly out and like, you know, <laughs> help you out with your stories. And I mean, um, I, I invited Hannah and, J and Jason on the panel because uh, they are both with outlets that are very responsive to pitches and pitchers. And I know that a lot of you out there, especially in the beginning, you write to people, you write these long, beautifully crafted emails with your pitches, and unfortunately, you get like pitch ghosted, right? You don't hear anything, right? It happens a lot. Um, and so this is more of a message to like us editors out there and people that are accepting pitches to, you know, we kind of got to step it up in that sense because I, I definitely feel that there's a lot of uh, frustration with, with people, you know, that meet some amazing people, especially here at Third Coast, and then, you know, don't, don't hear back. But um, I, just, I just wanted to throw it out there that, you, you know, you guys um, are in a great position right now to be here to meet all these amazing people doing amazing work. Um, and we have to stop pitch ghosting. Don't like it. Um, and a note to the pitchers out there, you guys, um, I, I got some, received some really great pitches, but some of them really didn't even fit the, the outlet that they were pitching to. And it was just like what like you guys were saying to understand where you're pitching to and why this story is important to that outlet and not to make the outlet craft the story you know, for you. That's kind of your job to do that. Well, I thought you guys were good examples of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Pitchers thought, were good at, you, you clearly knew the shows you were pitching. Right. You didn't come to me and say, I want to do a half hour for, for morning edition. Right. Which yes, a half hour morning edition piece. Let's pitch it. <laughs> um, a round of applause for Jason and Hannah. <laughs> and our amazing, amazing pitchers. And many thanks to Air, um, that um, Association of Independent Producers. If you are not a member, AIR is a great resource for all of you. Um, and there's actually pitch guidelines for a lot of the outlets that are here today. You guys enjoy the rest of Third Coast, and thanks for coming. Thanks for coming.